Christmas. It is a great time of year. You know, everything changes at Christmas time. And I don't know what your, your favorite part of the Christmas season is, but we'll notice that, that everything changes at Christmas time. Like, for example, um, the look of your street. You're driving down in your neighborhood um, and, and you see the different houses that are lit up with Christmas lights. That's not that's not an every every kind of day kind of thing. That is that is Christmas time. Everything changing at Christmas. Um, we used to live in a one story house and I used to get the Christmas lights and, and kind of run the outline of my roof of my house all the way around. But but now we live in a two story house and uh, you can bet your sweet Betty I'm not getting on that roof. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we, we had to figure out another way to decorate the house without the potential of me plummeting to my death. So we chose a different, a different plan, like lining the, uh, the driveway with Christmas lights. That's a great plan. Yesterday I ran over some of them with a the car, though. So, <laughs> so the, uh, you know, the, the look of your street changes at Christmas time. Another thing that changes at Christmas time is we give each other gifts. That's not an all year round kind of thing. Uh, but we give each other gifts at Christmas time. And I, I love that. Maybe that's your favorite part of, of Christmas. I love, you know, Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so, um, so giving must be really, really great because I sure do love to receive gifts. So, uh, you know, if you're shop, out shopping, think of me and I, I'm good at receiving gifts. I love giving gifts too. I, I give gifts to my kids. And I love uh, getting the, the presents together and dropping hints about what it's going to be. Um, I love, uh, I buy, you know, Christmas present for my wife and we have a budget that we are supposed to stick to and I never do. Uh, this year I'm going to stick to the budget this year. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, you know, gift giving is something that changes at Christmas time. Another thing that changes at Christmas time is the, uh, the music that you hear. So, you know, on the radio, driving around, you, you hear Christmas music. Um, you know, I was in Home Depot yesterday picking up some new Christmas lights because, I ran over the other ones earlier. <laughs> so I was, I was picking up Christmas lights and they were playing Christmas music in the store. Um, and, and so music changes. So I, and I love Christmas music. I love that, that every band has to have their, their version of that Christmas song. I, I love it. I love to listen to all of them. I, I don't know if Christmas music is your favorite part of the season. Some of you, um, you've been listening to Christmas music since Halloween. Um, and that's because you're bad people. But the rest of us, we start listening to Christmas music after Thanksgiving. Um, it can even be the day of Thanksgiving, just not before Thanksgiving. And, and so we love, we love Christmas music. That's, that's something that changes. Another thing that changes um, at Christmas time is probably what's on your DVR. Um, so Christmas movies come out. And they're all kind of movies that are showing. Some of you, I, you know, I, I could probably say about 50% of the room right now, probably has... Uh, your DVR full of Hallmark Christmas movies. Don't applaud. Um, so they're like 75 movies on your DVR, and they are all from one channel. They all have the same plot. The only thing that's different are the, the characters and the setting. Um, and But you, you eat it up and you watch it all, and that's fine. You can do that too. Um, that's fine. But I love like real Christmas movies. I love I, I love a lot of them. As a matter of fact, there's one Christmas movie that I feel like um, it may not be the best, but I feel like it's the pace setter. Um, and so uh, as I, I've got the opening clip. Let's watch a little bit of this Christmas movie.
there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. I like getting presents and sending Christmas cards and decorating trees and all that, but I'm still not happy. I always end up feeling depressed. Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. Maybe Lucy's right. Of all the Charlie Browns in the world, you're the Charlie Browniest. All right, so from the sound of your laughter, I feel like we're on the same page here. All right? We're on the same page. We, we love this, this movie, this Charlie Brown, and if you've not seen it, I won't spoil all of it for you, but Charlie Brown is depressed about Christmas, and so, like, Lucy comes in and tries to save the day, and why don't you direct this, this Christmas play, and that'll make you feel better if you've ever tried to direct a children's Christmas play. <laughs> that would not make you feel better. Um, and, then, and, and then Linus comes in, and, and famously, he saves the day, right? He tells Charlie Brown what Christmas is all about, and that cheers him up. Um, he reads from Luke 2, and I'd like to do that right now. I'd like to read from Luke 2, starting in verse 1. And Luke 2, verse 1, starts like this. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And that's what... Christmas is all about Charlie Brown. And we began a series last week uh, for this Christmas season, and we've called it The Promise. And Pastor Mark walked through last week the promises that God made. If you, if you go all the way back, even to the beginning in the book of Genesis, there are promises that are made that a hero is coming. He's coming to save the day. A Savior is coming. He's going to come. The Messiah. And here's the family that he'll be from, and this is the town that he'll be born in, and here's some of the things that he's going to do. A promise was made, but today what we're going to look at is not only is God a promise maker, God is also a promise keeper. And we see in Luke 2, it says that while Mary was in Bethlehem, she gave birth to her firstborn son. And then the text just kind of moves on and and really... um, the, the Gospels don't spend a whole lot of time on the birth of Jesus. But when we think about the birth of Jesus, there is so much theological truth packed into that statement than we could ever comprehend. What happened when Mary gave birth to this child? 
Well, the best explanation I can find of it is is actually in John chapter one. And that's where we're going to camp this morning is John chapter one. So flip over to John chapter one. It'll also be on the screen. See, everything changes at Christmas time. And we see that in John chapter one, look in verse 14. John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then skip down to verse 16. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. He has made him known. And so, Father, this morning, I pray that you would open your word to us, that your Holy Spirit would speak true. True to our hearts and and bring about change in us to make us more like Jesus. God, open our minds and our hearts to receive. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Well, I look at this verse, uh, John 1, 14. It says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Three things that I want to point out to you about um, that phrase, that little sentence there, I want to I want to point out to you. First of all, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, that, that's kind of a weird statement, especially if you've never read John before. So if we took the time to kind of unpack John chapter one, what we would find is is beginning in verse one. It says in the beginning was the word. So John is using this this statement as the word to refer to a person. So it's kind of like a, a poetic device to tr- try to help us understand what he's trying to communicate. He, he's referring to a person when he says the word. And, and he says, in the beginning was the word. And I read in the beginning, and that makes my mind think about another book of the Bible that starts that way. The book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's like John is saying, yeah, in the beginning, God created the, the heavens and the earth. And also in the beginning was the word, this, this person. And not only was he there in the beginning, it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. So he had some kind of relationship with God. This word was here before creation. He and he had some kind of relationship with God in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And then John just comes out and says it. Then he says, and the word was God. So when John says, I'm talking about this person, I'm going to call him the word. What he's saying is I'm talking about God himself. And in verse three of of uh, John, chapter one, he, he says that the word is the one who created everything, that there was nothing made that has been made that he didn't make. That's a roundabout way of saying he made everything. So we find out that the word, this person that John is speaking about is the uncreated creator. It's not that he was the first thing that was made. It's that he made everything and he always has been the the word. And that's why it's shocking when we read kind of the second thing we can pick up out of John 1.14 and the word became flesh. Now, that that's kind of shocking. The word became flesh. The uncreated creator, God himself, took on flesh. And that means a lot of things. But one of the things that means is that God set aside his rights and privileges in order to be human. God laid aside his rights and privileges in order to be human, the person of Christ. Here's what I mean. Let me give you some examples of that. By his very nature, God is not hungry, thirsty or tired. 
By, by his nature, God cannot need anything, right? Uh, and yet, we read about Christ, who John is referring to as the Word. We, we read about Christ in 40 days in the desert and Jesus was hungry. We, we read a little bit more and we, we find out that Jesus is he, he's on the cross and he looks at his executioners and he says, I'm thirsty. Jesus is tired and he takes a nap in a boat, but God can't be hungry, tired or thirsty. And yet. By his very nature, God is omnipotent. That means that God can do anything that he wants to do. God can do anything that he wants to do. Uh, Hebrews tells us that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christ, the son of God, upholds the universe by the words of his mouth. And yet. He becomes a baby who can't do anything for himself. And yet, and by his very nature, God is omniscient. And yet he had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to talk. God is omniscient. He, he knows everything. Everything that can be known, he knows. And yet he had to learn how to walk and talk. Now, by his very nature, God cannot die. And yet, brutally murdered by his enemies. See, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, laid aside all of those rights and privileges in order to become human. And that's shocking. But what is even more shocking than that, I would say, is the third part of John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh, and the third part is, He dwelt among us. That word dwell, uh, it's an interesting word that kind of points us back to another book of the Bible. Remember John 1, 1, in the beginning, that kind of started us off on, uh, on Genesis. But now, what, what John is doing, now he's in verse 14, pointing us to the book of Exodus. You remember the Exodus, right? So the people of Israel are slaves in Egypt. Moses goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. Um, some stuff happens. And they cross the Red Sea, um, escaping Egypt. And they wander in the wilderness, headed for the promised land. God wanted to be with his people. He wanted to guide them. He wanted to lead them. He wanted to speak truth to them, shape them into the people that he wanted them to be. So he wanted to be in their presence. So what God did... God had a tabernacle built. A tabernacle is like a portable, uh, a portable temple. So a place where God's presence was going to dwell so that the people could have him near, but he couldn't just be out and about because they would all die. So he was contained. He contained himself to the tabernacle. And Moses used to go to the tabernacle and, and the Bible says he would speak to God as a man talks to his friend. Moses would have this conversation with God. He would leave the tabernacle. He would come out and his face would be shining, reflecting the glory of God. And he wore a veil over his face to hide that glory. That was the tabernacle. God living with his people but then we get to John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, the Word became flesh, and literally the Word there could be rendered, and He tabernacled among us. He set up His tent among us. But this tent that was set up among us was not one out of wood and fabric. It was flesh and blood. It was a person who came and lived among us. 
Eugene Peterson is one of the greatest theologians of our day. He, he actually recently passed away. He's written a lot of books, and you should read some of them, but the one that you have probably read or at least familiar with or at least heard of um, is a book called The Message. Now, sometimes we kind of get, get it twisted a little bit. The Message is not a Bible translation. So you, you can't read the message as if you're, you're reading exactly the scriptures. That's not what you, Eugene Peterson had in mind when he wrote the message. Actually, what the message is, it's a great commentary. It's a great uh, devotional, but you can't study the message um, in, in the way that you can study like a, an actual Bible translation. What Eugene Peterson has done is he's taken the scriptures and what it says, and then he thinks, how can I explain this to people? So he's kind of skipping a step. He's not having you think about what it means. He He's writing what he thinks it means and trying to help you understand. So the message is a great book and you should use it. It's not great for like a word study. Like this word is used here and it's also used here and so it must mean this. That's not what the message is for. It's not it's not great for like, oh, this word's past tense, so that must mean this. That's not necessarily what Eugene Peterson was trying to do. It's a great commentary and a great devotional. You should use it. And, and, And as Eugene Peterson was working through the scriptures and he got to John chapter one and he got to verse 14 and it said the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He he thought and he thought and what he came up with was this. God moved into the neighborhood. God moved into the neighborhood. See, we had a sin problem and God was going to solve it. And the way that that God was going to solve it is, is he didn't just throw some money at it. He didn't send somebody else. He didn't plan like a one-week mission trip and snap some pictures. He didn't just roll through the neighborhood and feel sorry for us and like secretly lock his door and roll his window up. That's not how God chose to solve our sin problem. What did he do? He moved into the neighborhood. He dwelt among us. He took a hands-on approach. A few years ago, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge attended one of LeBron James's basketball games. He was playing for Cleveland at that point. And so royalty shows up to watch him play basketball. And after the game's over, they kind of meet together afterwards and they kind of exchange gifts. They're going to take a picture. And LeBron James does something that is egregious. Just the worst thing you could possibly do. And we have actually have a picture up there. Isn't that awful what he's done? You don't know what I'm talking about because you know, you know what LeBron James knows at this point in time, that British royal protocol is you never touch a royal. He's got his arm around her. And you're not supposed to do that. So isn't that terrible? The British royal protocol is you never touch a royal, but that's not the protocol of the ultimate royal one. You might never touch a royal, but the royal one took on flesh, moved into our neighborhood, became like us in every way, and yet without sin, all to be with us, all to rescue us. He moved in to the neighborhood. And so if God is going to take on flesh and He's going to, he's going to live among us, where would you expect Him to make this appearance? Around really important people or in a palace? Definitely somewhere important. Sally Lloyd-Jones said mountains would have bowed down. Seas would have roared. The trees would have clapped their hands. But as silent as snow falling, he came. 
And when no one was looking, he came. He moved himself into the neighborhood. He didn't surround himself with comfort or ease. He wasn't born into a rich family. Mary and Joseph were peasants. He wasn't even born a Roman citizen. He was a poor nobody in the middle of nowhere, some hick town somewhere. See, God moved into the neighborhood. And sometimes we take these stories and, and we put them on the shelf next to other children's stories. Right? It's Charlie Brown. We just stick it up on the, on the shelf. But John says in verse 14, he says, we have seen his glory. So I'm not just telling you something that I made up somewhere. I'm telling you something that I saw with my own eyes and other people, my friends, we call them the apostles. My friends saw it too. We saw this with our own eyes. We have seen his glory. We were with him for three years. We were best friends for three years. We saw it. We saw his glory. So this is not some story that you put on a shelf. This is actually a historical fact. Something that actually took place. So it may have been 2,000 years ago, but it actually happened. And what that means is that if God has moved into the neighborhood, that has real implications for you and me. It affects us in a very real way. When God moves into the neighborhood, it changes everything. Christmas changes everything. And in two particular ways that I want to tell you about this morning. Number one, when God moves into the neighborhood, there is no room for pride. When God moves into the neighborhood, there is no room for pride. We look at John 1.14 and we see the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What we see is an example of humility set before us. That God set aside all the rights and privileges of being God in order to bring about our highest good. Yes, to His glory. But our highest good is found in His glory. And I'm here to tell you this morning, and I want you to hear my words and understand that a servant is not above his master. And Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let me help you understand that for a second. It says that he was in the form of God. That means um, that, that Christ was in the exact imprint of of his father. He is God himself. He is in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God that he was God himself and had all the rights and privileges of being God. And then it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That does not mean that he didn't count equality with God a thing to attain to. Like I, I can't ever be him, so I'm not going to reach for it. That's that's not what that means. What that means is he did not count equality with God a thing to hold on to, a thing to cling to. But instead, what he did is he let go. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He let it go. He moved into the neighborhood. A servant is not above his master. So if you would call yourself by the name of Jesus, if you would call yourself a Christian, you would call yourself a Christ follower, then you are called to have this same mind among yourselves. And even though you have certain rights, you have certain privileges, 
If you belong to Jesus, you are willing to lay those down for the good of others to the glory of God. When God moves into the neighborhood, there is no room for pride in our marriages. I know that in this room there are some marriages that are having a hard time. And it's all over the spectrum too. Like on one side of the spectrum, like maybe you had a fight this morning on the way to church. And you know, that's maybe an apology and will you forgive me kind of thing. And then, and then it's kind of over. But, but on the other end of the spectrum, um, there are some of you that are having a hard time in marriage. And what, what you would say is like, have you ever been in a hurry to leave your house? You're, you're trying to get out, out the door as fast as you can. You're running late. You're having a hard time leaving, and then um, you're all ready to go, and you're trying to make sure all the kids are ready to go. And then one of the kids comes up and is like, hey, can you untie my shoe? And you look, and there's like this knot that you're not even sure how they did that. And you can't get that knot out. And you're in such a hurry, and you're running so late that you're thinking, you know what would be easier is if I just took a pair of scissors and just cut those laces off. We'll just do without the laces today. I know that some of us in this room... Uh, you, you are having uh, such a difficult time in your marriage that you think maybe if I just take a pair of scissors to it and just cut it loose, then, then it would be better. You're, you're, you're all over the spectrum on, on trouble in marriage. And I, I realize that I don't, I don't understand the details of everything that's going on. And I, I don't understand. It's not like just like one thing fixes the problem. It's a mess and it's tangled and it's difficult. So I don't, I don't really have all the answers, but one thing I do know that a major stumbling block in marriage is a thing called pride. It's a thing where, where we say, I deserve this and I should be treated this way. It's my right to be like this or to have this um, relationship in this particular way. And, And you're right. You do deserve it. And it is your right. But if you're called by the name of Christ, maybe I'm just saying maybe. Could you let that go? Could you let go of your rights and privileges for the good of the other person to the glory of God? One thing I know is that pride ruins relationships. It can ruin a marriage, but it can also ruin relationships at work. It can ruin relationships uh, with your neighbors and people you interact with. It can ruin a relationship with other family members. Pride ruins relationships. When God moves into the neighborhood, there's no more room for pride. Pride ruins relationships. It can ruin relationships in our church. See, when God moves into the neighborhood, there's no more room for pride at this church. And, and where is there pride at this church? I, I mean, so, so I might feel like my ministry, I've done my ministry for the, the same way for a long time, and this is the way it's supposed to be, and you're coming in that my ministry needs to change, or I need to let something go, but this is my preference, and this is the way that I've done it, and I deserve to be able to hang on to this as long as I want. And yes, that's true, but maybe for the good of other people, maybe, just maybe, you let that go. So that more people can be reached to the glory of God. Or, or, or maybe um, in regards to your group, like we have this group and we formed this group and we have these deep relational bonds. And now there's somebody new that wants to come into to our group and they can if they want to come into our group. They can. But if, if they don't want to come into our group, we just won't stop them because this is our group. This is our friendship. This is what we've formed over the years. And yet that's not the gospel. 
Us for no more is not the gospel. The gospel is come in. I will inconvenience myself. I will make myself uncomfortable. I'll take my preferences and set them aside to welcome new people. See, when God moves into the neighborhood, there's no room for pride. Jesus laid aside what he deserved. He made himself uncomfortable. He put himself in situations where he had to struggle. He entered into the fray at his own cost. For our good, for our sake, for his glory. And you and I are called to do the same in all of our different relationships that we have. When God moved into the neighborhood, there's no room for pride. And second, when God moves into the neighborhood, there's no room for fear. I wonder how many of us in this room right now live in fear. And maybe you wouldn't call it fear. You might call it anxiety. Or you might call it insecurity. How many of us live in fear? Fear of the unknown. Or the fear of failure. Or the fear of being found out. The fear of being caught. The, the, the fear of not being accepted. Or the fear of not being good enough. The fear of loss. Or losing a loved one. And I think some of us just walk in the fear of the worst possible outcome all the time. But when God moves into the neighborhood, everything changes. There's no more room for fear. John says in in chapter 1, verse 14, he says, We've seen His glory. I looked Him in the eyes. And when I saw His glory, do you know what I saw? John says, I saw grace and truth. And in verse 16, he says, And from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Literally, the idea there is grace heaped upon grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. Have you ever sat at the beach and watched the ocean? And watched, watched the waves come in? Wave after wave after wave. And, and you're, never, you're never wondering, well, is it done now? It's not Schlitterbahn. It doesn't stop. The waves just keep on coming, one after another. Some bigger than others, but they just keep coming. Grace heaped upon grace. Grace upon grace, upon grace. That, that word grace, it means favor. It means preference. Favor upon you. Love for you. John says, I've seen His glory, and when I saw His glory, I saw grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. But you and I, we think about, if I could look God in the eyes, if I, if I could see Him and we could have a face-to-face conversation... I wonder what I would find in his face. And some of us think, well, maybe what I would find is condemnation. Because he knows everything that I've done. He he knows what I do in public, but he also knows what I do in the shadows. He knows what I say in the shadows. He knows what I think. He knows my motivations. He knows me better than I even know myself. And so when I look him in the face, probably what I'll see is condemnation. Or others of us think, if, if I could look God in the face, do you know what I think I would find? I think I would find indifference. Like, have you seen the way my life has gone and how things haven't gone the way that they should? And I feel like I keep getting 
sucker punched, and I, I get sucker punched so many times that it stops feeling like a sucker punch, and I kind of expect it now. All of these things keep happening to me, and I pray and I ask God to fix it, and He doesn't. Like, maybe what I would find if I looked in the face of God is I would find indifference. Like, He doesn't care about me. He doesn't even notice me. He's not concerned with me. But John says that's not what you find when you look into the face of God. You see His glory, and what you find is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. You find His favor. You find His preference for you. See, we were in danger. And we were in danger, and it was our own mess that we made. We walked into it ourselves. We sinned against God. And God loved us so much, He wanted to solve the problem. And the way He was going to solve it was not by snapping His fingers or sending someone else. The way God was going to solve it was He was going to personally mount a rescue mission. He's going to save the day. He's going to move into the neighborhood. And that gives us some very important important information about God, doesn't it? It means a lot of things, but but for our context here, what that means, when God moved into the neighborhood, that was communicating something to us. It was communicating that He cares. He cares about you. He cares about what you care about. He's concerned about you. He loves you. He comes to save the day uh, at His own personal risk. At his own cost, he cares about you deeply. And that means that in Luke 2, when that angel appears to those shepherds and he says, fear not, we have very good reason to obey that angel. Do not fear. God has moved into the neighborhood. He has become like us. He has come to save the day and he cares deeply about us and what we care about. He's here. We have no reason to fear. Charlie Brown was depressed about Christmas. Linus comes to his aid. He reads the Christmas story out of Luke 2, kind of like what we did. But then if you're watching the movie closely, and you may have noticed this before, something, something happens. So if, if you've not watched Charlie Brown before, you're uh, unsure of, of, uh, uh, of the plot of that movie, um, Charlie Brown has a best friend named Linus. Linus is smart, thoughtful, insightful, but he's also insecure. And so famously, he carries around this, uh, this, this uh, security blanket and he sucks his thumb. You saw it in the, in the opening thing. He carries around this security blanket. And, and this security blanket thing is something that kind of finds itself a lot in the Peanuts comic strip all over the place. Uh, so so that, uh, Linus tries to like wean himself off of the blanket um, uh, Snoopy tries to steal the blanket. Uh, there, uh, there, there's this thing about um, having this emotional attachment, unhealthy emotional attachment to a blanket. And so he tries to get rid of it. And he just can't do it. It's his security. It's his safety. But in the Charlie Brown Christmas movie, I want you to notice something. Uh, we're, we're actually going to watch that. And I want you to watch the blanket. Watch the blanket. I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about.
Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Did you see it? Did you see the blanket? When did he drop it? Fear not. Fear not. The child has been born. The one that was promised from long ago. The one that was supposed to come save the day. The one who is mediator between God and man. The Prince of Peace the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the one that was going to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem, the one who's coming to make all things new, has been born. God is a promise fulfiller. See, God has moved into the neighborhood, and so listen to me, you can drop the blanket now. This fear of the unknown or of failure, of being found out or being caught, this fear of not being accepted or not being good enough or losing somebody or, or the fear of the worst possible outcome when God moves into the neighborhood, there's no more room for that fear. He has come. He has come to save the day and He cares about what we care about. And He's for us. He's not against us. In His eyes, a, a grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That thing that you're clinging to to bring security and comfort, you don't need it anymore. Cling to Christ instead. The things that you worry about so much, drop the blanket. When God moves into the neighborhood, there's no more room for fear. And so how are we going to respond this morning? Uh, first of all, some of you may need to consider what, what role pride plays in your broken relationships. And if you, your thought immediately goes to, yeah, that person's really prideful. <laughs> I mean, some of you may, may need to consider what role pride plays in your broken relationships. You might need to drop your rights and privileges in order to be a peacemaker this Christmas season. Yes, you're owed that. Yes, you deserve that. But can you lay it aside to be a peacemaker? And others of you may need to consider what role fear plays in your life. We may call it anxiety. We may call it insecurity. Whatever you want to call it. Maybe this morning what you need to do is you need to drop the blanket. And so here's how we'll respond this morning. The prayer team and elders are going to come forward. 
And so in a minute, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song. So here's what you might do. You might come forward and you might ask for somebody to pray with you that you're dealing with pride or in this particular situation in your family. Can you pray for me that I, I will be able to uh, humble myself and, and bring about reconciliation? Or, or you may ask for prayer about, about this fear, this insecurity that you're walking in, that, that you would understand what it means that God is with us and he's for us and he's not against us. And so I have nothing to fear. Or maybe you don't need to come forward for prayer. Maybe you need to come just to these steps that become an altar and you may need to just figuratively drop your blanket here and leave it. Or maybe you need to, um, when everybody stands, you just need to stay in your seat and you need to speak to the Lord about some things. Or maybe others of you, you just stand and you sing these songs at the top of your lungs. But this is a moment of response for all of us here this morning. So let's stand together. I'm going to pray and then we're going to respond to the word of God.